She said, Father, why don't you marry our neighbor? And then it was the summer of 1945. Grasshopper, you waste your time playing the banjo. When winter comes, what are you going to do then? We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And of course, it's always my pleasure to be with you. I'm Sam Payne, your host. I love to bring these stories right into your home, right into your heart. It's going to be a great hour we'll share today. Have you ever had a hero, an athlete, an artist, a superhero from the movies? We here at the Appleseed might argue that sometimes the best heroes are the ones who impact your daily life on a personal level, like a teacher who inspires you, a friend you admire, even someone in your own home. And there's a character in the story that we're going to bring you today who discovers that. The story is called The Day My Dad Met His Hero. It's told for you by the Story Crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. They share fantastical, rhythmic folk tales. You've heard them here on the show. But this tale isn't a folk tale. It's a true family tale about a boy who meets a famous baseball player that's always been his hero. But when he looks back on the incident many years later, he discovers who the real hero of the story is. Who is it? Let's find out together by listening to The Day My Dad Met His Hero. Here's the story crafters on the Appleseed. When my dad was a little boy... He loved one thing best in the whole entire world. My dad loved baseball. My dad ate, slept, and drank baseball, and that was all that he talked about. He would start every conversation, You know about baseball, right? And then he would toss in some detail about his favorite team. Now, he grew up in the Bronx, so his favorite team was the Yankees. And my dad had every statistic on the Yankees. He knew RBIs on all the players. Well, he'd be sitting at the supper table. His mom would pass him the peas. He'd say, Mom, you know about baseball, right? And then he would give information about one of his favorite players, Snuffy Sternweiss. He was a famous base stealer on the New York Yankees. And my dad knew about all the bases he'd stolen in every game, in every season. My dad knew a lot about baseball. And the way that he found out about it was not by watching it on TV, because when he was growing up, baseball wasn't televised. No, the way he learned about baseball was by reading newspapers and listening to the major league games on the radio. And my dad knew a lot of details about baseball. Dad, you know about baseball, right? Mom, you know about baseball, right? He had information about everybody. But it wasn't just the major leagues that interested him. He loved to play baseball, too. He and his friends would gather together, and they would play pickup games right on the streets of the Bronx. Sometimes it was an empty lot. Sometimes it was behind an apartment house. But many times it was in front of my dad's four-story walk-up apartment building. My dad made sure of that, because whenever a major league game was being played, my dad wanted to keep track of the score. So if the game was played in front of his apartment building, then every so often he could call up to the fourth-story window, "'Hey, Dad, what's the score?' And then my Grandpa Alan would lean out the window until his black glasses bumped up against the window guard, and he would tell my dad the score. Or he would tell my dad how many bases Snuffy Sternweiss had stolen in the game. With all that information, my dad would be satisfied, and he'd play the game with his friends. But his favorite thing to do was to see a Major League Baseball game. And it wasn't something he did very much. 
but every summer his parents made it possible for him to go see a real live Yankee game. They would scrape together what money they could, and on the day of the game, my dad and his father, my grandpa Alan, they would walk down the stairs to the street. They would go two blocks to the subway stop, take the subway two stops to Yankee Stadium, and then they would start walking up the stairs. And they'd walk up the stairs. And they'd walk up more stairs and more stairs and more stairs and more stairs and more stairs. Their hearts were pounding in their chest as they went higher and higher and higher in that stadium. They got to the very tippy top. My dad said it was so high, it was like they were in heaven. And they were really high up. They were so high up, they could barely make out the numbers on the players' jerseys. They couldn't read the expressions on the players' faces. But sitting way up there, with the stickiness underneath my dad's feet, the smell of the hot dogs, and the roar of the crowd in his ear, well, my dad truly was in heaven. Now, when Jerry's father, Paul, was a baseball fan, it was the early 1940s. So most of the really famous players that we hear about today, players like Joe DiMaggio and Phil Rizzuto, they weren't playing baseball. They were off fighting in World War II. So Paul had never seen a lot of those famous players play. He'd only heard about them. And he'd also only heard about his favorite baseball player of all, a man named Hank Greenberg. Now, Hank Greenberg didn't play for the New York Yankees. He played for the Detroit Tigers. But that didn't matter to Paul, because for Paul, and for a lot of the Jewish baseball fans in the 1930s and 1940s, Hank Greenberg was a hero because he was a Jewish baseball player who'd broken through. And he hadn't just broken through, he was a superstar. A lot of people don't know some of the stories about him, like he actually got within two runs of tying Babe Ruth's home run record, and he probably would have beaten it, but for the rest of that baseball season, when he was two runs away, every pitcher that he faced walked him. But all that really mattered to Paul was that there was this Jewish baseball player named Hank Greenberg who was off fighting in World War II, so he'd never seen him play. And then it was the summer of 1945. The war was ending, and some of those baseball players were coming back. Some of those baseball players, well, they started playing mid-season. And one of the baseball players to start playing mid-season in 1945 was Hank Greenberg. That was the summer that the Detroit Tigers got into the pennant race. That was also the summer that Hammer and Hank Greenberg's home run won the pennant for his team. That was also the summer that the Detroit Tigers went into the World Series and won the World Series. So now Hank Greenberg was a legend to Paul. He learned every statistic there was to learn about Hank Greenberg. And every night at the supper table, he told his parents something. Mom, you know Hank Greenberg, right? Dad, you know Hank Greenberg, right? His parents never got a word in edgewise all through that autumn, all through that winter, until the following spring. And that's when it happened. My dad was past the peas. He scooped up peas on his fork. He raised his fork up to his mouth and he said, Dad, you know Hank Greenberg, right? But one of the peas started to tip over the edge of the fork. And so to catch the peas, he opened his mouth and shoved the fork in. <gasps> And that was just enough time for Paul's father, Alan, to look at him and say, Yes, son, I know Hank Greenberg. And my father dropped the fork onto his plate. Dad, you know Hank Greenberg? 
When can I meet him? Well, Alan looked at the hero worship in his son's eyes, and he said, Son, I'll do whatever I can so that you can meet Hank Greenberg. Well, if my dad thought he was in heaven in the stadium, he was truly in heaven now. He was going to meet Hank Greenberg. And it made perfect sense. Hank Greenberg grew up as a Jew in the Bronx. His father was a Jew in the Bronx. He was a Jew in the Bronx. It made sense that the families would know each other. My father couldn't wait. And then it happened. One late spring night, he was sitting at the supper table, and his dad passed him the mashed potatoes. Well, he picked up the plate, but there was something strange about the bottom of the plate. And he put his other hand under the plate, and, and he felt something there. He pulled out one... Two tickets to the July 14, 1946 doubleheader between the New York Yankees and the Detroit Tigers. Well, you can imagine that time passed pretty slowly after that night, but the day finally came. And on the day of the game, in the afternoon, the two of them were getting ready to go. Paul and his father, Alan, were just about to walk out the door when Alan stopped, and he handed Paul a baseball cap. Paul unfolded the baseball cap, and it was a Detroit Tigers baseball cap. And his father looked at him and said, Well, son, if you're going to meet Hank Greenberg, you better be wearing the right baseball cap. Well, down they went those steps. Out they went two blocks to the subway, two stops to the stadium, and they started to climb those steps. But they didn't go very high. Their hearts hadn't even started to pound in their chests before they were brought to their seats. Well, they were sitting on an aisle, and they were so close to the players that my dad could read their jerseys very clearly. He could even read the players' expressions on their faces. And if he were paying attention to the New York Yankees players, he would have seen that, well, Phil Rizzuto, Snuffy Sternweiss, they might have been scowling that day because the Tigers creamed the Yankees 6-1 in the first game. But he wasn't watching the New York Yankees. All that first game, the only baseball player that Paul watched was number five on the Detroit Tigers, Hank Greenberg. And at the end of the first game, the two teams went to the dugouts. All the players, except for one, number five, Detroit Tigers, walked to the edge of the baseball field. He climbed up into the stands and he started walking up the aisle toward Paul and his father. He stopped right in front of them. He reached his arm around Alan's shoulder. He said, Alan, it's great to see you. Then he stuck out his hand. He shook Paul's hand and he said, Paul Burns, I've heard a lot about you. It's great to meet you. He said, I wish I could stay and talk to you guys, but I've got to go back down. I've got a second game to get ready for. But I want to give you something before I go. Hank Greenberg reached into his pocket and he pulled out a baseball. It was signed, Hammer and Hank Greenberg. He handed the baseball to Paul. Then he went back down the aisle, climbed down into the field, walked into the dugout, and it was over. And my dad sat there looking at the two treasures in his hands. A baseball signed by Hammer and Hank Greenberg and the warmth in the palm of his hand where Hank had touched him 
and he wondered how he'd convince his parents that he should never wash that hand again. Well, he didn't convince them of that, but he did leave one little corner of his hand unwashed so that he could point to it and brag to his friends, and brag he did. He told that story to everybody over and over and over and over again for a while. But you know how things go. Over time, he didn't tell the story as much. He never forgot about it, but he just didn't talk about it so often. In fact, as the years went by, he stopped talking about it altogether, and he'd really completely stopped thinking about it until his father died. And he was upstairs in his father's attic, cleaning it out. And he was going through one box up in the attic, and when he went through that box, he found an oversized envelope from the Detroit Tigers to Alan Burns. Well, he opened up that envelope, and inside there were two letters. Well, the first letter was in his father's hand, and it said, Dear Detroit Tigers, My son Paul loves baseball, but above all else, he worships Hank Greenberg, and his greatest dream is to meet his hero, Hank Greenberg. And through a terrible misunderstanding around the supper table one night, he seems to believe that I know Hank Greenberg and can make his dream come true. But I have to tell you, I've never met Hank Greenberg in my whole life, and I'm wondering if there's any way that you can make a father good in his son's eyes. And the second letter was from the Detroit Tigers to Alan Burns, and it said, Dear Alan Burns, We at the Detroit Tigers believe in heroes, and we believe that dreams can come true. So take these two tickets to the July 14th, 1946 doubleheader, between the New York Yankees and the Detroit Tigers. Make sure that you and your son are sitting in these two seats between the games and make sure that your son is wearing the enclosed Detroit Tigers baseball cap. Hank Greenberg will come up to you in between the games, talk to you as if he knows you, and introduce himself to your son. And my dad sat there holding those two letters in his hands. Two more treasures because they proved that he was one lucky boy. Because he got to meet two of his childhood heroes, Hank Greenberg and his own dad. My dad met his hero, a terrific beginning to a terrific hour here on the Apple Sea. That was the story crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. And we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more. You're going to hear from Diane Ferlat with one of Aesop's fables. You'll hear a story called The Clog of Gold, a version of the Cinderella story told for you by Milbury Birch. And you'll even hear an old tale, The Ants and the Grasshopper. You know the story. Maybe you haven't heard it delivered quite like Willie Claflin delivers it, though. Lots more coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, a true story called The Day My Dad Met His Hero, a story told for you by Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, the story crafters. Stories from Diane Ferlat and Milbury Birch and Willie Claflin coming up. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs, the things we see on screen, and exploring all of the ways that great stories come into our lives and into our hearts and minds. It's part of what we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined today by Gene Nelson. What a pleasure to have the director of the Provo Library with us. And uh, the, the Provo Library, Gene Nelson, is that's the best building in town. Why, thank you, Sam. We think it's pretty cool, too. <laughs> I've had the chance to be there now for well, going on 23 years. And wow. so I was involved with the construction, renovation, design of it. And I think we got it pretty just about right. A beautiful old building, really sort of snatched from the jaws of oh, boy. not being with us anymore. It right? just about died a very untimely death. Yeah. And now, good heavens, what an ornament to the to this Thank place you. it is. Yeah. And and of course it's filled with books. You know, I think about the, 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 the role that librarians played in my life. And one of the foundational stories of my life is when the librarian of my elementary school, Alpine Elementary School, uh gathered all of the upperclassmen of the elementary school, the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders into the into the uh, the, the media center, we called it, right. right? And wheeled out on a cart a television set on which we watched the launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia. Oh, wow. And, and, and it changed all of our lives. And that's your librarian. There that's, you go. Uh, that's right. <laughs> well, you must have become acquainted with a book or two. Uh, just a few. Just a few <laughs> over the years. I've had uh, some marvelous opportunities. I'm this is my 42nd year of wow. being librarian type of work and yeah. had some great opportunities, uh, have served on the John Newberry Award Committee. Oh, good heavens. Served twice on the Randolph Caldecott Committee. <laughs> so uh, that's a lot of books. Yeah, It's, that it's is. what I do. It's what I love. But you've brought a favorite today oh, I to did. talk about. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, you know, I was thinking – about books that really made a huge difference for me. Yeah. That maybe really sparked my my real reading desire. My mom was a um, a high school dropout, mm. and not really very well educated. But boy, she loved to read. Yeah. And so I remember I was about about four and a half, almost five, and she came home from the grocery store with this new book called "The Cat in the Hat." <laughs> the Cat and in the Hat. I was just starting to get those, uh, figuring out those letters and those words, and she brought Cat in the Hat home from the grocery store. They used to sell them on little spinner racks, you yeah. know, for a song and a dance, and uh, I fell in love with reading. Wow. My mom read that to me, and it just opened the world up with the <laughs> rhyming, this slightly mischievous, rebellious cat. Sure. There's oh, something a little it. naughty about it, that book, it right? It fed right into me. I loved it. <laughs> the Cat in the Hat. Boy, how old were you when you discovered oh, that? Oh, that was, I was must have been four and a half or five. That came wow. out in 1957. Man. And um, it really started, it gave me a chance to really think about what really got me started. And it really launched this great love of reading in books. 
So you would look back to your mom bringing that book home from the grocery store as kind of what – Bash's Grocery Store in Mesa, Arizona. (laughs) That was the store. And you you talk about a time when – you know when you talked about uh, those books being available on on rotating racks in your grocery store. In the grocery store. That was kind of another time, wasn't it? Oh, it it was totally different. And um, so once I figured that out – that when mom went to Bash's with her green stamps and traded those type of things in, yeah. that they also had more cat-in-the-hat type of books. <laughs> I found myself with my mom quite often going to Bash's eh, just to see what's new down there. <laughs> and, of course, she could hardly resist. They were just – I can't remember how much they sold for it, but they couldn't yeah. have been more than 40 cents a piece. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And uh, – all of a sudden, I had this great collection of Cat in the Hat and all the Mulberry Street books and yeah, uh, One yeah. Fish, Two Fish and all of those books that are still very, very popular with children today. Yeah. I remember uh, going to the store, much as you describe, and seeing on a similar rack uh, what would be my first experience with uh, superhero comic books. Oh, sure. Right? And I brought home – a. Uh, I, I brought home an Incredible Hulk comic book, and my dad looked through it and with kind of a frown. He, he thought <laughs> I can just see yeah. that frown. <laughs> he thought the Incredible Hulk was maybe too violent for his I don't know six year old maybe. Right. So he took me back to the same store and bought me a handful of Scrooge McDuck. Oh comics. sure. Yeah. yeah, and I was I was reading the probably. About that same age, I was starting to get into the Riverside High books yeah. with uh, Jughead and the Archie comics and fall in love with Betty and all those other characters <laughs> because my parents felt the same way with some of the Superman, Batman sure. stuff. Yeah. It's a little bit too mature for you yet. So they sent me on this this dating game with the, the kids from Riverside. <laughs> I loved it. You know, my dad saw a, a, saw a little stack of those old Scrooge McDuck comic books in my closet just about a year ago. Really? And he, he, he brought them into the kitchen where I was and he said, how would you feel about me borrowing these? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Because he was in the mood to get back to those Scrooge McDuck comic books. And remember how excited you were to read through those things. And it energized you. Oh, yeah. And we didn't have a lot of big TV shows or movies. Yeah. And so what did you want next? Gosh, I want the next installment. That's right. What happened to Scrooge with this next one or what happened with this major character? Yeah. And you become almost hooked on that. And, of course, we didn't know then, as you didn't know when you were, you know, the age that you were when the cat in the hat came home, that you were – uh, you are experiencing something that would be foundational. You so seldom do when you're having the experience. Right? Who would have guessed? Yeah. Who would have guessed? Gosh, it's taken us back not only to some great books, but to an environment that hardly exists anymore. Going to the grocery store with your parents and being able to pull a book down off of the circular rack. It was kind of like my first little library experience in yeah. a way. <laughs> well, what a pleasure to have had you with Thank us, Gene Thank you very Nelson. much. Thanks my so pleasure. Much for joining us. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And what a pleasure to chat with Gene about the cat in the hat. We've got to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story from Diane Ferlat, an old Aesop's fable called The Monkey and the Donkey. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. 
You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a conversation with Gene Nelson about the cat in the hat. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Certainly the the books that we digest and love and keep close to our hearts are some of the great ways that stories come into our lives. Coming up next, you're going to hear a story from Diane Ferlat. This is a story called The Monkey and the Donkey. And it's a fable, one of Aesop's fables. Very old story made new by Diane Ferlat and her musical accompanist, Eric Pearson. It's our pleasure to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Ah, what a wonderful story! The rich man was so excited. All day long, he wanted to hear story after story after story. And the rich man, he couldn't wait to brag to the king about this little slave and his wisdom. Oh, and when the king heard about this man and his stories, he sent for him. And the rich man brought the little slave before the king. And the king said, please, please, come, come. I want you to tell me one of your stories I have heard so much about you and your wisdom. Please, come. You must tell me a story. My king, you are a very rich man. And you, you too, are a very rich man. But you know, I am rich too, my king. You? You are just a slave. Oh, but I'm very rich. You see, I'm rich because I have shoes to wear. Some I know have no shoes. And I have clothes to wear. And I have a place to lay my head at night. And I have food to eat. Some have no food to eat. And I have hope, my king. And some have no hope at all. So you see, I am very rich. I may not have silver, I may not have gold. But when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have silver, I may not have gold. But when I laugh, I'll never grow old. There once lived an old, old man. But he was a happy old man. He was always laughing <laughs> and singing. I may not have silver, I may not have gold. But when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have silver, I may not have gold. But when I laugh, I'll never go And the old man's neighbors They all wanted to know Why is he always laughing? What's so funny? That's what I want to know How come he's so happy all the time? They all wanted to know 
But this old man, he had nothing. All he had was a tiny little house, a tiny little garden, and a donkey. And every week, the old man would go out to his little garden to see which vegetables were ripe. He would touch them. Eh? Eh? Ah! Whoa! Ooh! And he put the vegetables in his basket, and he would take them to the marketplace to sell, laughing and singing all the way. <laughs> I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I'll never grow old. And he sold every one of his vegetables. And the money he got, the money he got, it was only a little bit of money, and he couldn't buy all the things he wanted. But he could buy the things he needed. I don't believe you heard me. He he couldn't buy all the things he wanted, but he could buy the things he needed. And he did, and he put them in his basket and headed on home. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when the old man got home, he couldn't believe his eyes. Do you know what he saw? There, on top of his house, on the roof of his house, he saw a monkey jumping up and down. And when the old man saw this, you know what he did. <laughs> and the more he laughed, the more the monkey jumped. <laughs> <laughs> and the donkey just watched. But the next week, the old man he went out to his garden as usual to see which vegetables were ripe. Eh, eh, ah, oh, and he put them in his basket and took them to the marketplace to sell. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have. He sold every one of his vegetables, and the money he got. Well, it was only a little bit of money, and he couldn't buy all the things he wanted. But he could buy the things he needed, and he did. And he put him in his basket and headed on home. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I don't feel old. I may not have silver. <gasps> when the old man got home, he couldn't believe his eyes. Do you know what he saw? There, on top of his house, on the roof of his house, he saw. No, not a monkey. He saw 
his donkey. Jumping up and down. Hee-haw, 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 Oops. Uh-oh. There was a hole in the old man's roof. And the old man, he was not laughing. Stop the laughing! I said, stop the laughing! The old man was not laughing because there was nothing funny. He picked up a stick and he walked over to his little house and he walked up to the roof and he looked at that donkey and he said, you've done. You've put a hole in my roof. What are you doing, you silly donkey? He began hitting and hitting the donkey. What are you doing? You go away, you silly donkey. The donkey said, why? Why are you hitting me? When the monkey jumped up and down, you were laughing. And when I jump up and down, you are yelling and hitting me. Why? My friend, you are not a monkey. You are a donkey. So you see, you can't always do what you see someone else do. What is good for one person may not be good for the other. And the old man looked at his donkey Mm. He looked at the hole in his roof. Mm. Looked at his donkey. Mm. The hole. Mm. The donkey. Mm. The hole. Mm. And the old man said, <laughs> It is funny. <laughs> and the very next week, the old man went out to his garden to see which vegetables were yes right a e ah oh ooh and he put him in his yes and went to the oh yes you know the story I may not have silver I may not have gold but when I laugh I don't feel low I may not have silver I may not have gold but when I laugh I'll never grow old. And you know what? That old man, he sold every one of his vegetables. And the money he got, it was only a little bit of money. And he couldn't buy all the things he wanted. But he could buy the things he needed to fix that roof. And he did. And you know what? That old man is still living in that tiny little house with his tiny little garden and his donkey. And he is as happy and as rich as he wants to be. I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I don't feel old. 
I may not have silver, I may not have gold, but when I laugh, I'll never grow old. And when the king heard that, ah,、uh, he wanted story after story after story from the slave, and he thought, ah. A man with your wisdom should not be a slave. You should be free, free to tell your stories and share your wisdom with everyone. And the little slave Aesop was freed, not just to tell stories to the rich man's children, but to all the children. But that's not the end of the story, because these little tales that have been passed down. From generation to generation to generation, still have lessons to teach us today. Those tales that were told so long ago were told by a man named Esau, and he's still alive and well. The Monkey and the Donkey, told for you by Diane Ferlat, with musical accompaniment by her longtime musical companion Eric Pearson. Up next, a version of the Cinderella story. That's a story that has hundreds and hundreds of versions from all over the world. This one is called the Clog of Gold, and it's told by an expert in Cinderella stories, the great storyteller Milbury Birch. In fact, this story is from a collection called If the Shoe Fits: Cinderella Stories from Around the World. Here's Milbury Birch with the clog of gold here on the Appleseed. You can find、uh, one version of this story, the Iraqi story, in a picture book called *The Golden Sandal*, a Middle Eastern Cinderella story by Rebecca Hickox. There's also a beautiful version on which hers is based, called. The Little Red Fish and the Clog of Gold, found in Arab folk tales, edited by Inia Bushnick, and that's the story I'm working from today. Long ago, a fisherman, his wife, and their child lived by a great river, and there came a sad day when the mother drowned, and the father took care of their child. For he loved her with all his heart. Now they had a neighbor who was a widow woman who had a daughter of her own, and she would come often to that lonely house, and with her own child and her own care, fill it up with something like love. And when the little girl was old enough to take pity on her father for the things he had to do for himself. She said, "Father, why don't you marry our neighbor? She loves me as though I were one of her own children." The father said, "No, I have heard too many stories, in which that did not work. But it is said that water can wash away a stone." And so often did the woman come, and so often did the daughter speak of it, that at last 
He began to believe that his neighbor loved his child as her own, and he married the woman and brought her and her own daughter into their little hut by the river. And so, it was not long before the woman began to see how the fisherman doted on his child. She began to see how her own daughter was clumsy and foolish, while the fisherman's daughter was wise beyond her years and clever. And so what might have been love turned over in that woman's heart, and she began to hate her husband's child. And so she had her do all the work there was to be done, and she rarely gave her a kind word or a crust of bread, and never did that girl complain. She said, this is a scorpion I picked up with my own hand and I shall heal myself with my own mind. And so she did willingly all that she was asked to do. She would go every day to meet her father and get the basket of fish he had caught and carry it to the marketplace or to their house. One day he gave her a basket that had three large golden fish and one little red fish. As the girl carried that basket, it was the little fish that spoke to her. It said, throw me back into the water, and you'll always be my daughter. It was a remarkable thing to be spoken to by a fish. The girl set down the basket. She picked up the little creature. She thought, no kind deed is ever unnoticed by Allah. And she threw it back into the water and carried the basket on to the house as she had been instructed to do. But when her father followed after her and looked into the basket, he said, where is the little red fish that I caught? The stepmother stood over the basket and said, there are three fish here. You did not tell me there were four fish, girl. It must have fallen out, father, down by the water. Go, girl, said her stepmother, and bring that fish back or I will curse you. Oh, the child ran from that place to the water's edge and she called out, Mother, nurse, come up and save me from a curse. And do you know, the fish rose out of the water. And when it heard what the matter was, it came to her with a golden coin in its mouth. And when she had taken it out, the fish said, Give that to your stepmother. She will not complain. And it was true. That's exactly what happened. And from that day on, if the words were too unkind, or the food too little in her household, she would go to the river and ask for sustenance from the fish. And time passed. And the two girls grew up. And they were as they had always been, one clever, one clumsy. Now there came a day when the master of the merchant's guild was giving a great party. His daughter was to be married, and it was a party for the bride's henna. Henna is a kind of a painting that is put on the hands and feet of the bride-to-be, and everyone was invited to the ceremony. Foods were served. Everyone came, even those who lived and worked by the river. Everyone of every class was invited to the house. 
And you know, all of the mothers of daughters came and brought their children because they knew that all of the mothers of sons would be there looking over the crowd for the proper wife for their child. And so, the fisherman's wife dressed her own daughter, smeared her eyes with coal that she might look lovely, well, at least better, and carried her off to the great party, leaving the fisherman's daughter behind. And there she stood, sweeping as she'd been told to do, until they were gone. And then she ran down to the river and she called to the fish. She said, how I would like to go to this grand affair. Let me go this once. And the fish gave her a comb with pearls on it to wear in her hair and a great silk green dress with golden sequins and little sandals made of gold. She washed her face and went down into the town and came to the house. And when the door was opened to her, why, they thought that she was the daughter of the governor. She was so fine. They showed her to a place of honor. She sat beside the bride. They ate honey cakes together. Now at the edge of the crowd at the party sat the fisherman's wife and her child. She looked at this glowing girl in the center of the room and she said, How like my husband's daughter this girl looks, and yet it cannot be. It is said that Allah makes every seven men from the same clod of clay, and so that must be. Now the girl was sure to get up and go before she saw her stepmother and stepsister rise to leave. She thanked everyone for their graciousness wished the bride all well for her life, and hurried out the door. Now her path took her up a cobbled road and over a little bridge above a stream that flowed down into the king's compound. As she was running over that little bridge, she stumbled, and her shoe came off her foot and tumbled down into the water. She did not dare stop to look for it but hurried home, put away her fine things, and was sweeping again by the time her stepmother and sister arrived. And the woman said, Look at you. Still sweeping? Are you trying to sweep our lives away? But do you know that little golden shoe tumbled in the water, tumbled in the water, tumbled in the water until it was deposited by the current in a pond? And in the morning, the prince himself brought his horse to water at the pond, but the horse, seeing something gleaming underneath the water, stepped back, shying, until at last the prince dug out from the mud what it was and found the strange little golden shoe. And something about it intrigued him. So dainty, he said, so Beautiful. Surely the foot that goes in the shoe is dainty and beautiful, and the girl dainty and beautiful. And he went to his mother and said, Mother, I want a wife. She said, As many as you like, my son. He said, I want only the one, the girl to whom this belongs. And she said, I will bring her to you. And so the queen herself set out through the kingdom. Of course, she began in the master of the merchant's class, And then she made her way slowly from the center of the town to the outskirts. At last, she found herself coming down the street where the fisherman's hut could be found. 
and the fisherman's wife knew she was coming. So again, she rimmed her daughter's eyes with coal and dressed her in her finer clothes. And then she took her husband's daughter and she hid her in the baking oven behind the house with a clay tray over the door. And when the queen came and the shoe was presented, just as the girl went to try her foot in it, a rooster flew up and cried, They put the ugly one on show and hide the beauty down below. The queen called to her servants and had them unblock the door to the baking oven. And the fisherman's daughter rose out of it like the moon coming out from the ashes. And when she stood next to her stepsister, it was like the sun next to a tiny guttering candle. The queen handed the girl the shoe. She took the other from her pocket. And so the marriage contract was made. The queen gave a bag of gold to the fisherman's wife and said, Make this girl ready. God willing, the wedding will be on Friday and I will send for her. I will make her ready, said the woman. And she took the gold to a perfumer's shop. She said, I want... I want, I want a purge, a tonic, something to give my child that will tatter her bowels. I, I want, I want, I want arsenic and lime to put in her hair so that it will come out in clumps. I want, I want, I want an ointment that smells like dead things. The perfumer did not know why she would want these things, but the gold was such a large amount that he made what she asked for. And on the day that the girl was to be fetched, she was dressed in beautiful clothes, purchased for a wedding day. But the woman ran through the hair of the girl with the arsenic and the lime. She smeared her face, her arms, with the ointment that stunk of carrion. She grabbed the girl up by her ear and forced her to drink the purge. And then she sent her away in a litter to be carried off to the prince, sure that she would come home disgraced within the hour. But when the girl was brought before the prince, do you know he lifted up her veil? And a fragrance of amber and roses wafted forth from her. When he reached out to touch her hair, it was as though he were holding in his hands a golden cloth. And though she felt a heaviness in her belly, from beneath her skirts there came an endless stream of golden coins. And the prince was well pleased with his bride. Now news of this remarkable girl made its way throughout the city. The master of the merchants heard of her. His son wanted to marry a sister to this princess, and so they came to the house of the fisherman. They said, we want the other girl here. Give us her for a bride. And the fisherman's wife thought, what worked for the one will work for the other. And she took the coin she'd been given, and she went again to the perfumer. She got a purge, an ointment. She got 
all that she needed to make her daughter ready. And when the day came again, she put the arsenic and lime into her hair, smeared her with the ointment, made her drink the purge, wrapped her in lovely clothes, and sent her off to her husband. When her veil was lifted, oh, the stink of something dead filled the room. When he reached out to stroke her hair, it came off in his hands. And do you know, oh, he sent her home wrapped in her own filth. But the prince and the fisherman's daughter, they lived in bliss, and they had seven children, like seven golden birds. An Iraqi version of the Cinderella story called The Clog of Gold, told for you by Milbury Birch, who has gathered Cinderella stories from all over the world, and there are a lot to gather. The Cinderella story has hundreds and hundreds of versions from all over the world. Here's Willie Claflin to wrap us up today with another of Aesop's fables. This is The Ants and the Grasshopper. It's a story that you may be familiar with, but you may not have heard it told quite like Willie Claflin tells it. We're happy to bring this version to you on the Appleseed. They have called the ant and the grasshopper. Loved upon a time, boys and girls, there were lots of ants in a busy ant nest. And the ants spend all their time they piling up food and working real, real hard and gathering food together so when the winter comes, they can have lots of food and nobody else can get it. <laughs> So all the time they work real hard, real hard, storing up and gathering food, and their neighbor was a grasshopper. He liked to play the banjo. Strummy, strummy, boing, 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 boing. I sing my song to the sky so blue and to the sky at night. I'm hopping o'er the grass so green it is my heart's delight. The ants, they shake their head. Grasshopper, you waste your time playing the banjo. When winter comes, what are you going to do then? You should be storing up food to save for yourself, and, and nobody else can get it like us. But the grasshopper just go boing, 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 and off into the grassy go. Well, the ants were right. Winter time come. The weather get cold. It start to rain. It rain and rain and rain. And the rain soak down into the ground, way, way down into the ground, until all of the food that the ants have stored up is sopping wet. And then it freeze solid. And all of the ants' food is frozen solid. Meanwhile, in the middle of the winter, everybody is inviting the grasshopper to their parties to play folk music and entertain them. Swing, 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 do the stars above and hoppy across the grass so green it is the thing I love. Oh, thank you, grasshopper, they say. Here's lots of food and money and nice to have you around singing good folk songs. Well, well, the poor ants, they come to the grasshopper's house. Excuse us, grasshopper, could you give us banjo lessons? No, 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 you should have thought of this last summer when you were working hard and storing up food. You should have, you should have learned a musical instrument instead of storing up food like that. Well, the poor ants, you know. You know the moral of that story, boys and girls? Do not spend your time working really hard, make lots of money, and saving up stuff that you can have and nobody else can get. No, learn to play a banjo or at least a mandolin, and you can be a folk singer, and you will always have a job and a place to sleep. That's the end of that. Thank you. Thank you. 
We introduced that story, The Grasshopper and the Ants, as told by Willie Claflin. And, of course, what you heard was Maynard Moose, the moose puppet storytelling companion of Willie Claflin. Uh, Maynard has just about as many fans in the storytelling world as Willie does. Pleasure to bring you that tale, as well as The Clog of Gold, that Iraqi Cinderella story from Milbury Birch, an expert on Cinderella stories from all over the world. You also heard uh, Diane Ferlat and Eric Pearson with a version of an old Aesop's fable called The Monkey and the Donkey. And at the top of the hour, you heard the story crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Mark. Marshall with The Day My Dad Met His Hero, a reminder that not all heroes are famous athletes or artists or superheroes from the movies. Pleasure to be with you today. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. This hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. We do hope you'll join us again. Join us online or Google the Appleseed podcast for hour-long episodes of the show filled with stories for you and your family and also mini-episodes. We call them extras that you can only find in the podcast, usually just a few minutes long, in case you have just a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.